Well, I know that you know that our morning series is Penetrating Questions of Jesus. It's kind of amazing, really, when you do the study to find out how many questions Jesus asked. He asked questions of his disciples. He asked questions of his adversaries. He asked questions of general people. We have many of them, of course, recorded in the gospel stories. And then you have to sort of choose because there are too many, really, to go on and on and on forever with a series. And I've picked somewhere in the range of about 25 of these. We've been working our way through. We looked at Matthew. We looked at Mark. We're in Luke. And, of course, you know when you're looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that we're looking at what Bible students call the synoptic gospels. That is, they're similar. Those three look at things, we might put it that way, in a similar way. John's gospel is different. For all that, though, you can still come across the same story where you get a detail that wasn't given in the previous account. Or you get a turn of thought. Maybe something is worded in one not as a question, but we find out that Jesus asked that question. We find that in a different account. Now, here's something really interesting. This is at least the fourth week. I didn't go back and think before that, but this is at least the fourth week in a row now that we have been looking at a text. We've been looking at one of those penetrating questions now in the Gospel of Luke that is unusual to Luke. In other words, it's not material that's covered in any of the other stories at all. So if you go back four Sundays and we're talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and remember that story is not given elsewhere, nor is the question that we find there, who, is, who was neighbor? We don't find that anywhere else, so it's wonderful to be able to look at Luke's gospel and look at some of the ones that we find there. Then you come to Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool, and that question that's asked of the rich fool, then who shall all those things be? Don't find it anywhere else because we don't have that parable anywhere else in the gospels. You come to this little parable, I guess you can loosely use that terminology that we looked at last week about the man with the foundation and the man with the fighting troops and have we counted the cost and we don't find that little way of putting things although Jesus consistently challenges people about the about the subject of discipleship elsewhere but we find it here now look we've arrived at one today that's just like that you just don't have this story in the other gospels the story that we're looking at this morning of these men who were lepers and who cried out to Jesus for his mercy and this culminating, climaxing, penetrating, hard-hitting, powerful question that Jesus asks when he finds that nine are glad to accept what he has to offer, nine are glad to accept the cleansing, and only one turns back to fall at Jesus' feet, to give thanks, to give praise, and to worship. And it provokes this question from Jesus, where are the nine? A question that we want to look at this morning. Our lesson then is how we should respond to God's unmerited favor. That's really what we're talking about this morning. How we should respond to God's unmerited favor. Maybe when you hear me say unmerited favor, you say, oh, that sounds like a familiar phrase. Well, you'd be right because that's one of the most common definitions that we tend to give for grace. Someone comes along and says, well, you hear this Bible word all the time, what is grace? What is grace? And one of the most accepted and common things that we give for that is unmerited favor. I thought that you might like a little way of focusing on what that really means. I mean, it's all good and nice to mouth those words. Well, grace is unmerited favor, and it is, but what does that really mean as it applies to me? What does it really mean as it applies to you? Someone has put it this way. But if a person works an eight-hour day, receives a fair day's pay for his time, then that's a wage. 
if a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, so some type of an athletic type event, then that's considered a prize. A person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, and we call that an award. But when you have a person who is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that's a good picture of God's unmerited favor. That is what we call grace. I wanted to look today at two particular thoughts in order to develop this. So, fellow, it'd be great now if you can bring up that first thought, which is unexpected mercy. And we find this unfolding, really, in the several verses that open this account, verses 11 through 17. I want to show you some things that maybe if we were to sit down, you were doing a Sunday school lesson or something, do a little extra digging other than just reading this, you might find, and I think these things really help to illuminate this passage and really help to focus our attention on the true uh, impact of it. If you look in Luke's gospel, you will find that there are three occasions on which he mentions Samaria or talks about Samaritans. Well, we could go all the way back to Luke chapter 9. In fact, I referred to that passage last week. And we find there that Jesus has a preaching mission going, and he's looking to pass from Galilee in the north into Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And when we look back at that passage, it says here that Jesus was going in that direction. We look at verse number 52. It says he sent messengers before his face, and when they entered into one of the villages of the Samaritans to make ready for him, and they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And so this first time that Luke even brings this subject up, it, it comports completely with everything that we know in Scripture. We know that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. We know there was animosity between those two groups. We know there was uh, hatred between those two groups. And we remember the background of this, that going all the way back to the captivity when the Assyrians brought foreigners into the land and deported some of the Jews, and then these people became half-breeds, really, and then they also became half-breeds not only racially but in the sense of Judaism because they accepted certain things of the Jews' religion but they had some things that were rival to the Jews' religion. And we remember that great big discussion that Jesus got into with the woman at the well and how she brought this very point up. She said, our fathers worship in this mountain, Mount Gerasim, in that area, but you say in Jerusalem is where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, woman, I'm telling you the truth. The hour is coming and now is when true worship worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. So that's his first reference, and already it sets the stage for what we're going to find. Then we go to chapter 10, and that's one of the ones that we actually looked at. As I mentioned earlier, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You look at this, you find the reference in verse number 33 of Luke chapter 10, and it says, but a certain Samaritan... So here's this man, we know the story well, right? I mean, here's this man who, traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls among thieves. They leave him half dead by the roadside. He's obviously a Jew. A priest passes by. <laughs> nothing to do with that. A Levite passes by on the other side. <clears throat> Don't have anything to do with that. A man comes along who had every right to say that because of the animosity that existed between the two and stopped and went where he was and took up his needs poured in oil and wine into his wounds, took him to the inn, 
He was a Samaritan. And then we come to the passage that we're at today. We come to this particular story. Jesus is, again, en route to Jerusalem. Here's an interesting thought. When you look at our text here in Luke chapter 17, if Jesus is headed southward, in other words, if he's in Galilee and he's headed southward, this means he's going to have to go through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem, assuming he's not going across the Jordan River as the Jews typically did and pass down through Perea and then come back up through Jericho expressly to avoid these people. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't expressly avoid people? But the Lord does. Now, what's interesting is if, if that is the case, if Jesus is headed southward, that is from Galilee through Samaria and to Judea on his way to Jerusalem, then Luke does something kind of interesting because if you look at the opening verse, it says, and it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of, and he mentions Samaria, then Galilee, which would be out of the order, really, of travel because Galilee would be first, then Samaria. It's the first of a couple of times that we see any reference to Samaria or the Samaritans in this passage because later on in the story when we drop down we find out that the man who returns to give thanks was a Samaritan. So there is something quite interesting about what Luke is doing. He is bringing this whole point out. He is bringing this whole idea up in order to underscore the unexpected mercy that he showed in respect to these people. Of this group of ten, we are not told how many are Samaritans. We do know that at least one of them was, and we find that in verse number 16. It says, he fell down on his face at his feet giving thanks, and he was a Samaritan. We don't know whether more of those people were, but we can only guess that when Jesus passed into that certain village, as it says in our text, that it must have been either on the border between the two and had a number of people of both or else it was in Samaria proper but there were Samaritans on the scene where Jesus went he did not avoid that place and so we're not surprised here are ten lepers that's one thing we can say for sure about all of them they're all lepers there may only be one Samaritan and there may be more but one thing we know about them is they are all Samaritans they're, I mean they are all lepers and Luke describes through the lips of Jesus this man who is the Samaritan as a stranger. We get this detail later down in the passage. Notice verse number 18. There are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. Well, that's not a stranger in the sense of someone shows up that you don't know and you've never met them before, so they're a stranger. See, this is the word oligonase in Greek that refers to a man who's a foreigner. Jesus is bringing out the fact that, you know what, there's a cultural and a social barrier that exists on this occasion. Leprosy. Did you notice the detail that it says that these ten stood afar off? Did you know that essentially in the ancient world, leprosy constituted and would place a man into a position of being a social outcast as well as a spiritual outcast? You might find very interesting a couple of the prescriptions in the Old Testament that certainly tell us about this. The, the, this particular one that I'm going to read to you now comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. And we could read others, but if you will listen carefully to this, you will certainly see the point that I'm driving at. 
It says, And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and his head bare. And he shall put a covering upon his upper lips, and shall say, Unclean! Unclean! How would you like to have to do that? How would you like to have to know that you could be nowhere in close proximity to people? Because you not only have a noxious, incurable disease, but you are ceremonially unclean. That is, you not only have a physical difficulty that makes you unacceptable and repugnant to people, but you have a spiritual liability on your hands because no one wants to contract the defilement that you represent by getting close to you or touching you. You're forced then to stay at a distance. You're forced then to have even a covering over your upper lip. You're forced, if you abide by this completely, to say to people to give them warning in advance, unclean, unclean, don't come anywhere near. And you're not allowed to go into the camp, and you're not allowed to go into the village, and you're not allowed to go into the place of worship. The next verse, verse 46, And all the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. That's ceremonial defilement. That's spiritual defilement because leprosy pictures something that's far deeper and far more problematic because it pictures sin. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone, it goes on to say. Without the camp shall be his habitation. Wow. And then to compound all of that with the fact that this man was a Samaritan and Jesus was a Jew. And beloved, I have to tell you that the feel of this is such that when these ten men cry out to God for mercy, they cry out to Jesus for mercy, to tell you the truth, I'm not particularly sure they thought it was worth it, but when you're in a desperate condition as they are in, well, you just kind of, I'll give it a shot. I think it, really, I think it really exists in their minds about that way. Well, why did they even have any thought that Jesus might be able to help them? You have a story back in Luke chapter 5. You have the other story in Luke's gospel where Jesus healed a man who was a leper. Told him the same thing, go your way to the priest. He willed, he said, and cleansed this man. Go to the priest and now offer the sacrifice that the law prescribes and the fame of this Luke says spread around so maybe it's possible that this man had heard about Jesus he'd heard about this former miracle that gives some hope to them but on the other hand is Jesus really going to do anything for a bunch of people that a Jewish rabbi would be expected to avoid and there's another little coloring to this that we don't see because when we look at the verse where they actually make their prayer for God's mercy and we find that in verse number 13, that G they say to Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And we don't really look at that and regard that as particularly unusual, but I'll tell you, there is something here. There's a little flavor here that, that just on the surface of the English you're going to miss, and that's not your fault. But what you tend to miss is the fact that there were many times when people referred to Jesus as Master. We find it all over the King James Version in the Gospel stories. That people called Jesus Master. But almost, almost on the most all of the occasions, it's a totally different word. It's just the common word, Rabboni. It's the common word for rabbi, we would say, or it just meant teacher. Teacher, that's what master means, teacher. But you don't have that here. 
you have epistates. It's in a totally different word that attaches a much higher regard, a, a greater recognition, a greater veneration that you, you would give to someone who as a, an exalted, acknowledged, high type of a figure. And I think that the coloring that all of this puts in here is these guys are desperate. They are absolutely desperate. They see about Jesus, they hear about Jesus, they think, well, what hope do we have? But it's worth it, maybe. Other, that other guy, he got healed. Maybe we'll just cast our prayer out there. We'll just see what God will do. Jesus, Master, exalted, venerated teacher, oh, please, have mercy on us. All the while, they stood afar off. Yet Jesus grants mercy to them. Jesus grants grace to them in such an abounding way, beloved, that I lack the words this morning to communicate to you the heart that is really on my thought, in my heart and mind about how deep, deep, deep the love of Jesus really is. And how abounding is God's grace. And I think that we see that brought out in the passage when we notice a couple of things in particular because you see what happened that day when Jesus answered that prayer. It met every need that I've described on every front and it didn't matter how bad and how desperate that need was. I'll show you this if we look at the words together. First of all, Luke in the terminology that he uses, tells us two times that they were cleansed. Look at verse 14. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass, as they went, they were cleansed. Do you notice also down in verse number 17, it says the same thing. And Jesus answering said, Were there not nine cleansed? Oh, you don't want to miss that, because see, that's the spiritual word. That's the word that deals with the spiritual defilement that comes about as a result of our sinful condition that came about as a result of their leprosy. That's the word that deals with the things that also rendered them social outcasts, that put them in a position that they had to live and dwell without the camp, that put them in a position that they had to yell to people from a distance, stay away, unclean, unclean. And Jesus, as it were, with a word, bestows such grace upon these people, bestows such mercy upon these people, that that social and spiritual stigma and problem is immediately and totally gone. <clears throat> but there's another word that's used, and you have to sort of enjoy this a little bit. You have to sort of smile, because you remember that Luke was by profession a who, a what? He was a doctor, so oftentimes when you read these stories, Luke throws some little detail in there that reveals the fact that he had a particular interest in the medical side of things, and we find that in verse number 15. You read that, Luke tells us, and one of them when he saw that he was, you see that word there now, not cleansed, but what? Healed. Because you see, leprosy also represented a deep, deep problem on the physical level. Leprosy was incurable, Leprosy was obnoxious, and leprosy was terminal. There was no cure for it in the ancient world. And with a word, 
Jesus meets their need not just on the social and spiritual level, but Jesus meets their physical need. You're talking about grace. You're talking about mercy. Then we have a word that Jesus uses right at the end of the story. This word sort of summarizes the whole package because we get to the end and we're told there, in verse number 19, Jesus says unto the the one man, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Made thee whole. Think about that for just a few moments. What does it really mean to be made whole? It means to understand that the problem that we have is on a multifaceted level. It means to realize that like this leper, there was a physical problem. Maybe we don't come to God so much today with a physical problem. But we come to God with spiritual problems, and we come to God with spiritual problems that are known only to us. Those things that exist in our life that we know and other people don't know. And it's actually the word to save. You know, beloved, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what your need is. It doesn't matter what you've done wrong. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. It doesn't matter what would make you socially unacceptable to people. It doesn't matter the fact that your sin drives a wedge between you and God, that your sin drives a wedge between you and other people. It doesn't matter any of those things. God has the grace that deals with that problem on every level that you can imagine. I was interested in reading about a woman that went to serve the Lord in India. Somehow she developed an interest in the lepers. And so she went to visit the leper colony and took an interest because she was deeply moved at the people's plight. Probably we've never heard her name before, and it's probable that most and some of God's best servants that we just have never heard their name. She was a pioneer missionary. Her name was Mary Reed. Like I say, she was interested and took an interest and went to visit the leper colony. And, but later she contracted leprosy herself. She went to work with the lepers, eager to tell them that she knew firsthand exactly their pain and exactly their trauma. Beloved, do you begin to see what I'm trying to talk to you about, about being made whole? Do you begin to see the, ra- the havoc that sin wreaks on every life? The emotional havoc that it causes, the pain that it causes, the wounding that it causes, the separation that it causes, driving a wedge wedge between us and God and between us and others. Do we begin to see? Do we even have any thought this morning? Have we even thought recently about what the depth of our need is and what it takes to really make us whole again? like Adam before the sin. She went there and she died there. She died at the year, she had served the Lord for 84 years, but a church was built in that place. After many years of faithful service with these people who were social outcasts, I read that story and I thought to myself, you know, that's pretty much what Jesus did. That's pretty much it, pretty much summarizes it, that Jesus came into this world whole and clean and pure as the driven snow. 
took to himself human flesh, all the while being wholly harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners, and walked straight into a leper colony. Walked those weary roads, walked those pathways, mixed it up with sinners so much so that the self-righteous people of Jesus' day criticized him as being a friend of sinners. But he trafficked with sinners because he understood and eventually he went to the cross of Calvary and he took the leprosy that is mine and he took the leprosy that is yours. And ever since that day, in my life and in yours, that we cried out to him for mercy, he has cleansed us, he has healed us, he has made us whole. He has saved us to the fullest extent that's possible. All because that's the way his grace is. Maybe you think about it this way because Peter has a verse that he talks about this <clears throat> when he talks about the abounding grace of God. He talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 where he calls it actually the manifold grace of God. It's a it's a, it's a really interesting word. Maybe you think about a diamond, and yeah, you know what? The whole thing is a diamond, but it has so many different facets. It's like God's grace. It's all a diamond, but it has this facet and that facet because it meets this need, and it meets that need. It doesn't matter what need you have. It's always sufficient to meet that need. Or maybe you think about language. You know, there was a day when there was one language on the earth. Did you, we all know that, right? <clears throat> Did you know today that people tell us that there are some 6,500 spoken languages in the world today? Some by small people groups, very small people groups. 65, I, I, you know, I read that sometimes back in the earlier chapters of Genesis where God decided that he was going to stop right in their tracks, rebellious, sinful people, building that tower in disobedience to God and in arrogance, and God decided to stop them right in their tracks, and God said, the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to confuse their tongues. That way they won't be able to communicate, and that way they won't be able to build, and they'll just have to sort of go their ways according to whoever speaks the particular language they got. Every time I think about that, I think, well, you know, God did a good job. I mean, all you have to do is go into a, an airport, it's, you hear it here now, but you go into any European airport or other foreign airport, a big airport, and just walk through there, and you think to yourself, okay, Joe, I can't understand half of what's going on. But you know what? Even though there are 6,500 languages, it's all language. Even though there are 6,500 ways that God demonstrates his grace, it's all grace. It's all mercy. He meets our needs. I want us to think for just a few moments, if we could, about another idea for a few moments. And this is our unexpected gratitude that we find, ingratitude that we find in the closing verses here. I'll bring that up. Thank you. Only the Samaritan responds. And on the human level, it clearly surprises even Jesus that that would be the case. On the human level. If you look at the questions that he asks, again, there's some things about the grammar that bring out this even more in a more... Jesus puts it this way in verse 17 when he says to the man who came back to them, were there not ten cleansed? 
the way you'd bring out the full force of that question is, ten were cleansed, weren't they? In the next verse, he says, there are not found returned to give glory to God, save this stranger, and we're not even told this is a question, but it is. No one was found, I'll bring it out this way, no one was found who returned to give glory to God except the stranger. I mean, it's very clear when you look at this and catch this flavor, this nuance, what's going on here is that on the, on the human level, Jesus ex is expressing dismay. He's expressing surprise that he could have poured out something so rich, so full, so unexpected, only to have 90% of the people walk away with not even so much as a howdy-do or a fare-you-well. Only the Samaritan responded exactly like they all should have. And I want to bring this second thought kind of to its fullness in what I have to share with you this morning by telling you the reason that that's true. The reason that we can say that this man is a picture of how every one of us should respond to God is because everything about it is a hallowed scene of worship. It's one reason I quoted that verse to you a while ago when Jesus said to the woman, look, you don't know what you're talking about. The hour is coming and now is when the true worship worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. And he goes on to drop this little nugget. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And I can't get a hold of that. I can't quite get a hold of how God wants me to come worship him. And he prescribes what my worship should be, but he tells me that's what he's looking for. He's looking for worship. So when I come across a scene that I can tell is, is, is absolutely a sacred, holy moment of worship, I want to talk about it for a moment. I see three things that help to flesh out this picture. We're, first of all, we're told, these are not the three, but we're, so that you see where I'm coming from, we're told in verse 16, this man, when he came back, he fell down on his fate, face at Jesus' feet. There's the prostration. There's the position of worship. It's the clue to tell us what's really going on. Verse 18 says that he understood specifically exactly what the ultimate goal of our worship is. It's brought out by what Jesus said. He was giving glory to God. There are three things that I think, three descriptive facets, if you will, we don't have to take long, but I do want to call your attention to it. I first of all see effort here. We're told in verse number 15 that he turned back. Do you see that? And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. The other guys just sort of kept on with what was more important to them. This guy said, no, something's more important than what was important. So he took the effort. He took the trouble. He turned back. And I'm telling you, beloved, to have the kind of worship that God is looking for for me and the kind of worship that God is looking for for you, it takes a little effort, it takes a little trouble, and God is worth it. And the whole reason that there are people who don't and aren't willing to take that trouble is because they don't think God's worth it, which is what worship really is, worth-ship. So just how much is God worth it to you? Well, praise the Lord, he's worth something because you took some trouble. You got up this morning when you could have slept in. You came to church. 
And it's not that we should be self-righteous for that accomplishment. It's that we should understand that in that small act, we are reflecting what it takes to worship God, some trouble, some effort. This is corporate worship. We're gathered here on Sunday morning together. But worship doesn't stop here. God wants us to worship him all the time. It'll start later today, but it'll really start tomorrow when you figure out how's your day going to start. Will you start with worshiping God? It'll take a little effort to do that. Will you do that? I secondly find excitement. Verse number 15 says, One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice. Wow. I don't know what would happen if somebody got excited in here. I'm not trying to be unkind. But you think about it. I know we're a reserved congregation. I also know we're a conservative congregation. I understand all those things. I also know sometimes it seems like we're in a funeral home. I also know that I don't see your heart, so I don't sit in judgment. But I do wonder sometimes. I wonder sometimes when I sit, when I watch from the platform and I see people that are texting or passing notes. I wonder sometimes when it's time to sing a hymn and I see people talking we're not even bothering to sing. Why is it that we're not excited? I also know sometimes you get up on Sunday morning and you just had a bad day. You don't feel like talking to anybody and it's a wonder that you're even here because that's just how you feel that particular day. You know, beloved, I'm like you. I come out of the same bolt of cloth, so don't think I'm preaching down at you. I'm just asking me and asking you, where is it? I also know that some people show excitement different ways. And the last thing I see is exaltation. It says in verse 16 that he turned back to give him thanks. And in verse 18 it says he gave God glory. See, not only was he not half-hearted, there was excitement in what he did. But he knew that what had happened was totally unexpected and totally undeserved. One day a woman was walking down the street. You perhaps had an experience like this. She looked ahead, she saw a man who was on the corner begging. He was an older gentleman, not much about him very appealing at all. He was unshaven, he was ragged, dirty. Dirty, dirty to the point that when people would kind of, and she could see this up ahead, pass by, they were sort of not happy that he was there and keeping their distance. All of this had a very different effect on this woman. It moved her to compassion. It was a cold day. She looked at the man, he had a tattered coat. Not only was the coat tattered, but the coat wasn't really a coat, not for a winter day, not a winter coat. It looked like some kind of an old dilapidated suit jacket that he'd found somewhere. He had it wrapped tightly around him out of the, because of the cold. She stopped. She looked down. She said, sir, are you all right? The man looked up slowly. Here he sees a woman. He can tell right away that she's dressed well, totally out of his league. He, she has a new coat. He can tell she hasn't missed too many meals. There's nothing thin or gaunt about her. He thinks that she's just stopped to make fun of him. 
like so many other people have done. So he looks up at her and he, he just says, leave me alone. To his amazement, the woman doesn't leave him alone. She stands there and he looks up and she's smiling at him. She looks down again. She says, are you hungry? He gets sarcastic now. He says, no, I've just come from dining with the president. Now go away. The woman doesn't go away. She just keeps smiling. In fact, if anything, her smile becomes broader and suddenly the man feels a gentle hand reach down under his arm as if to try to pick him up. What are you doing, lady? The man says angrily. I said to leave me alone. About this time, noticing that there seemed to be a little bit of a disturbance, a policeman walked up. He says to the woman, is there any problem, ma'am? Oh, no, no problem here, officer, she says. I'm just trying to get this man to his feet. Would you help me? officer scratches his head for a minute, looks down. He said, that's old Jack. He's been a fixture here for a couple of years. You sure? What do you want with him? She says, well, you see that cafeteria over there. She says, I'm going to get him something to eat and get him out of the cold for a while. The officer says, are you crazy, lady? The homeless man resists. He says, I don't want to go in there. But all of a sudden, he feels stronger hands yet laying hold of him. It's the police officer. And he looks down to the guy, and he says, don't blow it, Jack. This is a good deal for you. So finally, with some difficulty, the woman and the police officer get Jack to his feet. They lead him into the cafeteria. He sits down with the woman at a corner table, it's the middle of the morning, so most of the breakfast crowd is gone, and most of the lunch crowd hasn't arrived yet. That's all to the good, really. The manager comes up to the table. He says to the officer, what's going on, officer? What's all this about? Is this man in trouble? The officer says to the manager, no, this lady brought this woman in here. Well, this lady brought this man in here to be fed. The off manager says, not in here. That's bad for business, having a person like that in here. It's about this time that the old man smiles with kind of a cynical grin. See, lady, I told you so. Now let me go. I didn't want to come here in the first place. The woman turns to the cafeteria manager. She says, sir, are you familiar with Eddie and Associates, the banking firm down the street? The man says, of course I am. He says... They hold their weekly banquets and meetings in one of my banquet rooms. And she said, well, I suppose when those occur every week, you probably do pretty well with that. You probably make some pretty good money from that, huh? She says, he says, yeah, but what business is that of yours? She said, well, sir, I am Penel Penelope Eddy, the president and CEO of the company. Oh. The woman smiles again. I thought that might make a difference. She glanced at the cop who's busy trying to hold on to a giggle. She says to the officer, would you like to join us for a cup of coffee and a meal, officer? He says, no, ma'am, I can't. I'm on duty. She says, well, then perhaps a cup of coffee to go. He said, yes, ma'am, that would really be nice. The cafeteria manager turns on his heel. I'll go get your coffee right away, officer. The officer watches as he walks away, turns to the woman and says, well, you certainly put him in his place. 
The lady says, well, that wasn't my intent. She said, believe it or not, I have a reason for all of this. And then she sat down and looked right across at old Jack, who was on the other side of the booth. She said to him, as she met eyes with him, she said, do I look familiar? He says, I think so. I mean, you do look a little familiar. She says, well, it's true I'm a little older. Maybe I've filled out a little more since my younger days when you worked here. And I came through that door cold and hungry. Ma'am, the officer says, because he just can't believe that such a magnificently turned out woman could ever have been cold and hungry and in that position. She continues, I was just out of college. I had come to this city looking for a job, but I couldn't find anything. Finally, she goes down to my last few cents. I'd been kicked out of my apartment. I walked the street for days. It was February, and I was cold and hungry. She says, I saw this place and walked in in the off chance that I might somehow here find something to eat. Now, now Jack lights up with a smile. Now, he says, I remember. I was behind the serving counter. You came up and asked me if you could work for something to eat, and I said, no, that's not company policy. You can't do that. I know, the woman said, but then she said, you made me the biggest roast beef sandwich that I've ever seen. You had a cup of coffee. You took me to this table over here. She said, I sat down with that food and then looked up to see you open that cash register and pay for my meal. So Jack says, so you started your own business. She said, well, I got a job that very afternoon. I worked my way up, eventually started my own business with God's help, prospered. She opened her purse, pulled out a business card, gave it to him, and said, now when you're finished your meal here, she said, I want you to go right down the street to Mr. Lyons. He's our personnel manager. And she said, I'm going to speak to him first because I'm sure when you go there, that he will have something that you can do. And she said, in fact, I rather believe that after I speak to him, he probably will be able to find enough funds to give you some money up front in advance so that you can get some decent clothes and you can get a place to stay and you can get on your feet. And she said further, if you ever have anything that you need, my door is just down from his my door is always open. Now there are tears in the old man's eyes. How he said, can I ever thank you? The woman says, don't thank me. To God goes the glory. Thank Jesus, he led me to you. Such an unexpected display mercy but in this case was not met with ingratitude 
So we are left to ponder this morning as our message concludes the penetrating question of Jesus, where are the nine? And with it comes a rather unpleasant reality that Jesus pointed to on other occasions. That it seems like the people who have the most are grateful the least. And where are we? This is the question. Where do we find ourselves? Among the nine? Or like the one who came this morning to have sacred moments of worship? Who came this morning to give God glory? Who come recognizing how ill-deserving, unfit, and lost we really are apart from the grace of God? And thinking about our own particular condition, which is really like, not like anyone else's. Again, it's like the diamond. We're all sinners, but the facets of our sin are different. And it doesn't matter. That day you cried for mercy, that day I cried for mercy, it didn't matter. It didn't matter the depth of the sin. It didn't matter what you'd done wrong. It didn't matter how repulsive you might be to God and others. Now his door is always open. His grace is always full. And grace for grace. Because it's abounding grace. So which are we? Among the nine or the one? The story is told of a particular group of students in a class at school. You've seen ones like this before, full of unruly kids, hard to manage. In fact, they'd already run off a couple of teachers in that particular class. The job for teacher of the class was open, and the principal was looking for someone to teach the class. And there was a young man who showed up to the, to the announcement and asked the principal about the job. And he said, well, he looked at him as young, and he said, I don't know you want to go in there. He said, they've already run off several kids. You sure? He said, you're just looking for a terrible beating. Guy thought for a moment, Christian guy, sent up a Nehemiah fair flare prayer and told the student, or told the principal, well, yeah, if you'd be willing to give me a chance, I'd like the job. So the next morning he came and he stood before the kids and he spoke out with confidence and he said to the kids in the class, he said, young people, I'm here to conduct school today. But he says, I know I can't do it by myself. I need your help. There was a big boy, unfortunately his name was Tom, there was a big boy in the back of the class that when he said that, I need your help, snickered to one of his classmates, I won't need any help, I can lick that little bird by myself. He was referring to the teacher, of course. Well, the teacher went on, he said to, to the students, he said, you know, we're going to have school here. He said, we have to have some rules to go by in our classroom, right? And so we need our rules, but he did something these kids weren't expecting it. They'd never had happen before. He said, I want you to help me make the rules. And we're going to write them up here on the blackboard as you give me the rules that we need to have in our classroom so that we can really have schools and be successful. You give me these rules. I'll write them up on the blackboard. 
There was silence for a few moments, and finally one kid said, no stealing. And so the principal wrote up on the blackboard, no stealing. Another kid threw his hand up and said, be on time for class. He wrote, be on time for class. This went on for a few minutes till he had 10 rules written on the blackboard, all that came from the students. Well, you know, rules are good, but if we don't have enforcement of the rules, they really don't mean anything. So he said, what do you think we should do if someone breaks one of these rules? And the kids thought about it for a minute, and one kid said, well, I think that whoever breaks one of those rules should come up front, have to take off his coat, and get 10 lashes on the back with a rod. Boy, you can tell this isn't a modern story. <laughs> Teacher thought about it for a minute and said, man, that is harsh. That is hard. But that's what the kids wanted, so he said, well, we'll go with it. Well, they went with it. Everything went good for two, maybe three days. And then all of a sudden, Big Tom, he came in, he was upset. I mean, upset. Why was he so upset? He said, somebody stole my lunch. Murmur went across the room. They talked about it a little bit. And finally, somebody said, I saw that little kid with it. I saw the little kid with your lunch. His name was Timmy. So now we've got Big Tom and Little Timmy. And after this goes on for a few moments, Little Timmy comes up to the front and admits that he's stolen Big Tom's lunch. Teacher says to Timmy, you know the punishment? He said, yes, ma'am. He said, I'll accept my punishment. Just one thing I ask, please don't make me take my coat off. Teacher looked at Timmy and said, well, this is what we agreed to, not just the ten hits, but you have to take your coat off. The little kid didn't see anywhere else he could go. Teacher said, no, has to take his coat off. So he started to unbutton his coat. All of a sudden, it became really clear why little Timmy didn't want to take off his coat because he didn't have a shirt under the coat. Teacher began to look a little bit more and saw that it wasn't just that he didn't have a shirt, it was that he could see his bones. And when he finally took the coat off, he could see his spine, all clear, gaunt little kid, all hidden under that coat. The teacher asked, Timmy said, well, my dad's dead. My mom's poor. I only have one shirt. She's washing it today. So my big brother gave me his coat so that I could keep warm. The teacher stands there looking at that kid, no shirt, looks at his frail back, sees his spine protruding through his skin, sees his ribs sticking out, wonders how on earth is he going to lay a rod on the back of that kid. But he knew what the kids had said, and he knew that if somehow they did not enforce with the punishment that was prescribed, they wouldn't be able to keep order. Right about that time, Big Tom stood up, bustled his way down the aisle to the front of the class and says to the teacher, is there any reason that I can't take Timmy's whipping for him? Teacher thought about it and said, no, not so as I can see. 
Big Tom ripped off his coat, stooped over so the teacher could hit him on the back. Teacher hit him on the back five times, and all of a sudden the rod broke. Teacher now has his face in his hands just sobbing. He hears a bustle in the room. He looks up. There's not a dry eye in the room because little Tim and big Tom are embracing as little Tim apologizes to Tom for taking his lunch, asking him to forgive him, and telling big Tom that he would love him till the day he died for taking that whipping for him. My question is this, for me, for you, are you glad today that Jesus took our whipping? If Jesus were here today, would you wrap him up in a hug? Would you tell him, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for my sins. I'm so sorry for those things that I have done wrong in my life. I'm so sorry for my unkind words. I am so sorry for my unkind deeds. I am so sorry for my hardness of heart. I am so sorry that I'm so cold and indifferent. But thank you for forgiving me. And I want to love you for the rest of my life every day. Or to put it differently, are you glad Jesus took your leprosy? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.